Have you ever heard of poke bags? Maybe you called them something different. Inside those treat bags, those poke bags, um, we would have an apple, an orange, um, usually some nuts of some kind, maybe a chocolate bar, Cracker Jacks, and usually a big peppermint stick. This is Ricky Mullins. He grew up in Appalachia and looked forward to getting these poke bags every Christmas at church. When I think about just kind of the context of church, it's really a unique place where you're a captive audience with older people who are teaching you and handing down these traditions to you. You know, even in a home, it doesn't even really work sometimes because, you know, the kids are playing with this or they're trying to watch TV or they're, you know, distracted by something. But in church, especially where I went to church, in the age I went to church, there's no distraction. Ricky has traced the tradition of poke bags back at least three generations. And this Christmas, he's bringing poke bags back to the church where he's pastor. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, holiday hand-me-downs. Poke bags have been part of Ricky Mullins' Christmas traditions for at least three generations. He's been talking to elders to learn more about its origins. And while he's reaching back to learn more, he's also reaching ahead to carry the tradition on. This year, he's bringing the poke bag tradition to the youth of the church that he now pastors in a small town of Duncan's Gap, Virginia, only 12 miles away from the University of Virginia College at Wise, where he's now a professor of education. With Good Reason producer Lauren Francis spoke with Ricky about poke bags. She grew up with them too, but far from Appalachia, and she's never heard them called poke bags before. Ricky, tell me a bit about where you grew up. So I grew up in the coalfields of Virginia, in southwest Virginia, uh, in Wise County. Um, I grew up in what's called the Duncan Gap section of the county. Where I grew up was kind of the backwoods. You know, growing up out there, I attended a small little country church called Duncan Gap Free Will Baptist. So I grew up in a very different place. I grew up in central Virginia, and I spent a lot of time northeast of Richmond at my grandparents' home and church in King William, Virginia. Uh, But I understand that despite that geographical difference, we have a tradition in common, uh, something that you call poke bags. Describe for the listeners, what is a poke bag? So poke is a, it's a throwback, and the old timers that I grew up with, they would refer to paper bags as poke. A poke bag, just a plain paper bag that you would put groceries or something like that in was called a poke bag. I remember getting poke bags um, at Christmas every year. It was a it was a Christmas treat that was given out at the church. Inside those treat bags, those poke bags, um, we would have an apple, an orange, um, usually some nuts of some kind, maybe a chocolate bar, Cracker Jacks, and usually a big peppermint stick. And that was given as the Christmas gift from the church to the kids. And uh, we we got that every year. And I remember kind of having mixed feelings about it because some of the stuff in there I really liked. You know, I liked the chocolate Mm -hmm. bar, but Mm -hmm. the fruit and the Cracker Jacks, I didn't really understand what was happening when when we got those. (laughs) I'm a little jealous because I don't remember any chocolate, really. I remember there was always... Maybe two or three candy canes. The The green ones were like, wow, this is amazing, just because it was different. We had an apple, which when I think about it now, probably someone in the congregation was growing that on their property in like an orchard or whatever. So did the adults around you, did they call it a poke bag or is that sort of a name that you gave to it? No, the old timers called it a poke bag. My papa, he he would refer to it as a poke they would give us those, and, um, you know, us, us kids, we would open up the treat bag. I, I remember us trading some of the stuff with each other. Uh, if mm-hmm. We had something that maybe somebody else didn't get, and I, re- I said I had mixed feelings about it because I didn't really understand why we, you know, why we had some of the stuff we had in there when maybe kids at that time didn't really care for Cracker Jacks, but some of the kids really right. liked it. But I know I was reluctant to say anything negative about it because I know my parents wouldn't have tolerated that. So I just smiled and took the treat and enjoyed it. In the very least, I remember there being little Hershey Kisses in there and the the giant um, peppermint stick that they, they would find. I think that was a bit um, updated from what I understand. Um, when I, I spoke to uh, 
a great aunt of mine who's 76 years old, and uh, she remembers getting those when she was a child. And I asked her what was in hers, and I think she told me an apple, an orange, and a candy cane. And I think that was about the mm, extent of it. Mm-hmm. Did your parents grow up getting those bags? They did. Um, they did. It, as far back as I can talk to anyone um, around here, they, they received those those same treats. I know my dad is 60, I think 64 years old, and he received those mm-hmm. treats. And the lady I spoke with yesterday, she remembers receiving the treats from the time she was a child. And I would guess that was something that had to date, you know, come before her at some point. I'm, I'm thinking around the, uh, you know, the turn of the century, maybe 1900s, early 1900s, but mm. I'm not really positive because then I, I followed up and I said, well, what did you get for Christmas, you know, when, when you mm-hmm. were a girl? And she said, usually a doll. And I said, well, that was the whole Christmas. She said, yeah, I got the doll and then the treat. Sometimes they're referred to as Sunday school treats because the Sunday school offering would pay for the treats for the children. Wow. What do you think the sort of lineage of this tradition is? Where do you think it started? I have read that it's something that was uh, done in African-American communities, and it's something that was that was done in, in poor communities. I don't know what st- you know which came first. I'm not positive, but I, I'm thinking that maybe it started around the same time. It was something that mm-hmm. was shared knowledge. I think sometimes we think of uh, the Appalachian region as being being non-diverse, but it was actually very diverse, especially in the early 1900s when you had uh, immigrants working in the coal mines. Then, and Appalachia mm-hmm. was a much different looking place than it is now. There, there was a heyday of mining in the region when, when people stayed and it provided a steady income and there was union mines that came in and provided that security. I know my, my papa worked in a, in a union mine, but when that left, I think people also left. When that steady employment left the region, then they had to leave for better opportunities. And um, I know a lot of those people went to, I guess, what we would call the Rust Belt, uh, southern Ohio, to get more steady jobs in factories when, when the mines didn't provide that, that avenue. You know, when you think about your great aunt's generation and getting that poke bag and a doll baby for Christmas, and then you kind of fast forward a few decades to your generation and receiving the poke bags, do you think that it remained a financial thing? Or or how can I put it? Did you have a sense as a kid that like, oh, we're getting this gift because our parents can't really afford to do anything else or had it sort of evolved from that need? I don't think so. You know, there's a lot of us who didn't have a lot, but we didn't know we didn't have a lot uh, because everybody was the same. You know, you had a couple of people who you knew had plenty of money and then everybody else was was pretty much equal. No, it, it never even registered. Um, and I think the reason they gave it to us is because it's it's something they wanted us to like because they 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 loved it as a child. You know, it meant a mm. lot to them as a child to get something like that. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you speak to that uh, because I would agree that by the time it came to my generation, or really our generation, we're around the same age. You know, it was not, for me, it was far from the only Christmas gift, right? And I, I always thought of it as just something really sweet where, like, these sweet old people who I thought at that time were, like, 90, but they were... <laughs> maybe 60 or 70. <laughs> I just thought all oh, these sweet old people who I love so much, all my great aunts and all the elders at the family church, they're giving us the things that they think we want. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I always thought it was. They're just giving us what they like. I think so. And I, I think it's a natural part of of getting older because, you know, I, I have a young child and I want him to want to like the things that I liked as a kid. Mm-hmm. Now, he probably won't, or he may like some of it, but I think that's uh, a natural part of, of getting older is that you want you want the next generation to appreciate the things you appreciated. And mm-hmm. I believe that's what they were trying to do with us when they gave us these poke bags with, with random gifts. And, you know, I, I do really wish um, two things. I, I wish they had explained to us why we were getting them, and I, and I wish that I had asked you know, if they didn't explain, I wish I had asked more questions mm. about why we were doing this. It's always something, you know, you don't think to ask questions like that until you've done more living. But by mm-hmm. the time you've done your living, the people who you thought were 90 when you were five, they're gone. You know, it's like you have to you have to live and earn your questions. Yeah. And I think as the older you get, you know, you you develop these questions with life experience, but sometimes you turn around and 
the person that you that you wish you had spoken to is no longer with you and um, mm. those questions just remain unanswered sometimes and the best you can do is kind of speculate you know what happened and, and why it happened right right so how old is your son and has he experienced has he ever received a poke bag is is that still a tradition he'll be seven months December the 16th Oh, so he's a little baby. He's a little guy, and uh, he's never experienced a poke bag, but he will, if time lasts that long, he will experience a poke bag this month because I'm now the pastor of a church across the the ridge from the church that I grew up in. Um, And at that church, Living Waters Independent Baptist, um, I'm starting the poke bags back um, on our December the 23rd kids service. Mm, That's exciting. That's really exciting. So... Do you think that the poke bags, is it a distinctly church tradition? Like, do people get poke bags outside of churches? I've never heard of that. Yeah, I haven't ever heard of it either. And when when I think about just kind of the context of church, it's really a unique place where you're a captive audience with older people who are teaching you and handing down these traditions to you. You know, even in a home, mm-hmm. it doesn't even really work sometimes because— you know, the kids are playing with this or they're trying to watch TV or they're, you know, distracted by something. But in church, especially where mm-hmm. I went to church, in the age I mm-hmm. went to church, there's no distraction because there's still not a whole lot of cell service out there. So, you know, in 1993 or 94, when I received these, there was nothing else to get my attention. So I was a captive audience to to older people mm-hmm. who were giving us this. Mm-hmm. I guess when you think about it, too, to your point, um, Churches bring a lot of different generations together in a very particular way. There's a lot of space for for passing down traditions um, without even thinking about the fact that that's what you're doing. Correct. I mean, that's what started getting me thinking about the poke bags is why why did we do this and why in church? And, mm-hmm. you know, what, what were we trying to promote there and where did it come from? And looking, you know, I've, I've had grandparents that have passed and uh, mm-hmm. One will be close to 90 right now, but, you know, the the best estimation we can do is ask the oldest person in our community, and when they can remember it, then you know it's at least at least 75 or 80 years old, and it right. has to be older than that for them to have done it. Right. It, their parents would have had to have done that. Correct. So what is your why? You know, why why bring back the poke bags? I like to bring back the poke bags to to remind the kids in the church that, you know, there was a time in our community's history and in the Appalachian region when this was it. This was what your gift looked like at church. And I think it's good to keep your, your hand on the pulse of your people and your origins and remember, you know, what shaped you and what molded you. Um, mm. How long were you sort of eligible to receive that? I remember the last time— Getting one of those was probably the early 2000s, which would have put me at about, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. Mm. I know there's churches around here that still do that because I've talked to a few people Mm -hmm. about it this week. And there's churches that still do that. But I remember at that point in time, kind of, I don't know if you age out or you just get to the point where you you don't qualify, you know, when they hand out the treats. Right, I'm not sure. Is there a big population of children at your church? We're we're a growing church, and uh, for for our numbers, yet we run probably about forty to fifty people on Sunday, and we probably have anywhere between seven to I don't know, probably between seven to twelve kids at any given Sunday or Wednesday. So you know, yeah, we 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 do pretty well. We we've quadrupled in size in the last year and a half, and with that have come children. So. Um, I really like to do things for the children in the church, so th- that's mm. part of the reason I'm starting that again. Hmm. Do you envision sort of switching up some of the tradition, or are you going to keep it super traditional? I'm going to keep it pretty traditional. I'm thinking of going maybe with Cracker Jacks and peppermint and uh, an orange and an apple. I'd like to keep it pretty traditional, not have any, mm-hmm. anything really too modern in there. If anything, maybe chocolate, because I remember that. But other than that, not not much beyond that. Well, Rookie Mullins, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me on With Good Reason. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. That was With Good Reason producer Lauren Francis having a conversation about poke bags with Ricky Mullins, 
He's a pastor and a professor of education at the University of Virginia College at Wise in Appalachia. Jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams lived through the beginning years of jazz and helped shape it as a pianist, a composer, and an arranger. Then she stopped. She took a break and converted to Catholicism. From that time forward, she only composed and performed hymns, sacred music, and masses. And she was known for her annual holiday concert at Duke University Chapel. Gail Murchison is a professor of music at William & Mary. She walks us through some of the sacred songs by Mary Lou Williams, just in time for the holidays. Gail, Mary Lou Williams was born in Atlanta and one of the greatest jazz pianists and composers of all time. Why do you think so few of us know that name today? Well, I think for several reasons. Mary Lou Williams was a woman, and so much of jazz history, the history of jazz has been written by men, and especially by white men. And women in general have been overlooked and the contribution that women have made, not just as singers, but as pianists and composers. She mentored some of the great names in the industry. Name a few of them. Well, um, first of all, she was very, very close friends with Dizzy Gillespie and his wife, Lorraine. But among the many musicians that she mentored were musicians who went on to shape bebop in the early 1940s. Thelonious Monk, bebop pianist Bud Powell, one of uh, jazz's uh, bebop's really, truly brilliant virtuoso composers and pianists. Charlie Parker she'd known back since Charlie Parker was a teenager playing saxophones and hanging out and attending jazz sessions back in Kansas City in, in the 1930s. Is it true she was a child prodigy? She was sitting on her mother's lap and her mother had been playing this pump organ. So here's little three-year-old, two, three-year-old Mary Lou Williams, and her mother's been playing these songs, these hymns, on a pop organ. And Mary Lou Williams starts playing back what she heard. Mm. And then Virginia realizes that her daughter has this extraordinary gift. Let's play a couple of pieces that show us the range of her skill and what her music sounded like. Let's play first a piece called Walking and Swinging. Yes. This was uh, recorded in 1936, and it's a Mary Lou Williams arrangement. That solo, piano solo in the middle, is Mary Lou Williams. And it shows off Mary Lou Williams' talent as a composer and her ability to arrange for a big band. This is in the style of swing, Kansas City swing. Jazz was the dance music of the day. Jazz was the party music. Jazz was the music that they played at, 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 at dances all around the country. So let's play another piece that also shows more of her style. This is one of her earliest recordings that got her catapulted to prominence. It's called Nightlife. This is Mary Lou Williams' first recorded solo jazz piano uh, recording. It's exciting. As you listen, just think about how many different rhythmic ideas that we hear and how many rhythmic changes 
that Mary Lou Williams can do. I mean, literally, she can turn on a dime in terms of going from the steady beat to going to throwing the, the turning the beat around to emphasizing the, the offbeat. And it makes you want to just get up and dance. Because again, this is what this was when you think about the Harlem rent parties in the 1920s and 1930s where um, people would hire a pianist uh, to come in and entertain when they were throwing a party to try to raise rent in the 1920s. And it, oh, it has some of its roots in ragtime, some of its roots in the blues, some of its roots in, in swing music, and, we hear, and some of its roots in vaudeville. And we hear all of these things in Mary Lou Williams, uh, for Mary Lou Williams' original composition. You write that she toured England, France, Germany, yeah. like so many musicians, after World War II. Was her music appreciated there? Yes. In fact, by the time we get to the 1950s, Mary Lou Williams was, 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 was really well-known and widely respected as an artist as opposed to an entertainer, more so in England and later France than she was in the United States. Musical taste had shifted, and but the important thing and one of the key things is to think about the issue of race and racism in the United States as well as sexism, but especially race and how black music and especially jazz was not always fully appreciated as an art here in the U.S. as it was in the United Kingdom and in Europe. I read that she abruptly quit the music scene in Paris in 1954. Why? What was going on for her? Well, she had struggled with 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 managers who who and agents who basically ripped her off as they did everyone and especially black artists. So Mary Lou Williams had been struggling for years um, against put and pushing back against an industry that basically exploited her and denigrated her as a black woman. Her friend, jazz pianist, had died. And then uh, shortly after that, Mary Lou Williams came to a point of a personal crisis. And she basically had a nervous breakdown. And she walked out of a set one night and didn't come back for a very long time. She had intended to quit jazz altogether. But she had a powerful religious conversion, which ultimately led her back to music, but composing religious pieces that were deeply meaningful. Yes, there were two stages to that. She had began to to read the Bible. Then when she returned to the, to the United States, back to her apartment in Harlem, she used to go to a local church where she would just sit there and meditate and pray. And she said that when she was sitting there in, in church, she could hear the most beautiful music because composers, they, they imagine, they think in music. Through her music, she was able to reconnect with her spirituality. And through her spirituality, she was able to reconnect to her music. Dizzy Gillespie's wife, Lorraine, was, was, was Roman Catholic. And uh, she started uh, taking Mary Lou Williams to church with her. And that's how Mary Lou Williams ended up converting to Roman Catholicism. And she began to play and compose what you call sacred jazz, what is that, and where did we see her perform this? She wanted to compose jazz to be used in an actual Catholic mass. And in the 1950s, that wasn't possible, even though her priests and advisors who were in her circle encouraged her to return to jazz, and they were trying to convince her that she could combine both jazz and her faith. And the turning point came in 1962, uh, but first, with um, the Vatican II era, when the Roman Catholic Church began to re-examine, to take an inward look and change its liturgy and admit what at first it called indigenous musics from around the world to the Mass, rather than just allowing only Gregorian chant and certain kinds of music. And the other thing that opened the door was the canonization in 1962 of Martin de Porres, who was the first black saint, the first saint of color, to be canonized in the Roman Catholic Church. Tell me about the annual holiday music concert that she came to perform each year at Duke University Chapel, 
where she was a professor. Yes. Well, um, Mary Lou Williams, had, in the early 1970s, Mary Lou Williams had been hired to Duke as artist-in-residence, where there she taught the history of jazz class course and other courses with respect to jazz and, pia- and jazz piano. And um, every Christmas, there was a Christmas concert and service in Trinity Chapel at Duke University. And she performed some of her own compositions, and she also performed um, some traditional Christmas music. And that's how I discovered Mary Lou Williams' music, because I'm originally from North Carolina, and the first time I saw Mary Lou Williams, and this was the first time that I'd ever seen any woman pianist play jazz or play the piano like that, was when I saw her. And so then that's when I began to look more into Mary Lou Williams's sacred jazz. And that's how I first uh, encountered this piece, St. Martin de Porres, also known as Black Christ of the Andes. As soon as Mary Lou Williams heard that uh, Martin de Porres had been canonized, she sat down and began composing this piece. The poor made a shrine Gail Murchison, what a delight. Thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason, and have a wonderful holiday. Well, thank you for having me, and the same to you. Gail Murchison is a professor of music at William & Mary. to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Food, especially this time of year, really brings us together. Ryan Stouffer knows that well. His dad ran a popular rib restaurant when Ryan was younger. And his dad's garden-to-table meals taught them both that it is definitely possible to eat too many green beans. Ryan Stouffer is a professor of communication studies at Longwood University. He teaches a class there that explores what we communicate through what we love to eat and what we flat out refuse to eat. Ryan, growing up, your father ran a restaurant. How did that shape your relationship with food, do you think? Probably in more ways than I realize. I mean, getting to see my my father um, has always struggled to figure out what he wanted to do when he uh, grew up, right? And uh, I think food has been that one passion of his life that he's figured out. And so he tried to make a go out of it with a restaurant and and that didn't work out. But I think seeing my dad in that environment, uh, seeing the power of food to connect people and bring us together. I mean, it's somewhat cliche, right? We always think, oh, let's break bread together and and do that. But I've had so many countless experiences here myself, and I know other people have too, where you sit down over a meal and you get to know each other and you talk and you 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 create a bond that's really difficult to do in many other situations. And so I think seeing my father struggle, I mean, it was a struggle to make that restaurant go, but seeing the power of good food and community and livelihood and how that came together, I'm sure the time I was 15 years old, it didn't have impact me uh, what I thought at all. 
but I think in retrospect, uh, those are the those are the the fundamental building blocks that you get in your youth that you don't even realize how they affect you in your youth until later on. So, what was the restaurant? The restaurant was called the Rib Rack. It was an American style, so they did ribs as their main thing here. But then they had pizzas, sandwiches, um, uh, these monster cookies that my stepmom still makes today and sells now in a little farmer's market. And so just all kinds of delicious stuff like that. I love ribs. I'm one of those people always looking for ribs that are juicy and yummy and not dry and hard and tough. Were his great? Yes, the uh, they were baby backs, right? And you have to do not St. Louis style. So the baby back, they're smaller and more tender. And the th- the funny thing is, I don't make them a lot, but my five year old daughter does love ribs to this day. <laughs> yeah. um, and so you have to take the silver skin off the ribs here, and that's the secret to getting your baby backs to actually be tender. And then of course, there's a whole idea with baby back ribs. Do you want them competition style, where they still kind of cling to the bone a little bit, and you got to pull them off with your teeth, or do you want them super tender, where you just pull the bones out of them and they just fall off here? And so I like them both, frankly. Uh, you know, I'm not a competition barbecuer, uh, but it's those kind of things that you get into food is communication, right? Who would have thought that the amount the meat pulls off the bone affects whether they're competition worthy or not? I kind of want some fat in there. <laughs> Me too. Did you ever work at the restaurant? I did. Did it teach you anything about food? I think the restaurant taught me about uh, those kind of intangible things about food. I mean, you know, you watch, I'm a huge fan of the cooking shows and you watch all them and they always talk about loving their food. And I think that's truly what the restaurant probably taught me because my dad and my stepmom and their cook, I mean, they all, of course, were there to, you know, work and make money, but they truly love making good food. And of course, that's not a requirement to have good food, but I think it's one of those intangible benefits. And so I think it taught me that about food. And then again, about the ability of good food to bring you together. And they, that's the one thing they had. Their, their business downfall was not a, at all about having good food. It was about location and difficult to get a liquor license. And so I think the ability of good food to bring you together and that kind of that, that secret ingredient, if you will, of the, the love and actually enjoying what you want to do and getting satisfaction out of people enjoying a meal here, I think are all probably things that, that affected me. Did he cook for you ever when you were growing up? Yeah, my dad stayed home with me when I was a kid, actually. My mom worked full-time back in the day, and my dad stayed home and did almost all the cooking. My mom cooks, too, um, but my dad just was around and did it more. And so, yeah, getting to see him in the kitchen, that's where, frankly, I did most of the eating with him because I think I was 15 by the time the restaurant opened, so I was already doing my own thing. But as a 5-year-old, 6-year-old, watching him you know, in the kitchen every night making family meals, and oftentimes they'd be family meals from things we grew. Both my parents are way into gardening. I'm still super into gardening today, and so I guess getting to see that that tangible, you know, farm to table, if you will, like in front of me on a, on a regular basis as a, a child. I'm getting, I'm sure, help craft my love of food and gardening and cooking. Where did you live where you had these gardens? I lived in uh, Herman, Michigan, which is a teeny little town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. What sort of things did he grow in his garden and what things did he make on his own? So, so tomatoes were very, very difficult to grow back in the day because we did not have a long enough season. Uh, later on in my life, my parents got a greenhouse, a 48-foot greenhouse, so they were able to finally grow tomatoes and peppers and eggplant. Uh, but fun story is growing up, my parents were actually vegan when I was born. Um, they they tried to do the whole <laughs> hippie live off the land. They leaned, leaned to that whole thing. Both my parents are suburban kids. Yeah. My dad grew up in suburban Detroit. My mom grew up in suburban Dayton, Ohio. And um, they moved to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan without running water, without, you know, uh, uh, indoor plumbing, all those kind of fun things, and tried to live off the land on very little money, and uh, eventually had me and were vegans. And so when I was little, they used to grow a boat ton of green beans. And so it was one of the <laughs> successful crops we could do. This was pre-greenhouse. And so we ate them. All of us ate them all the time. But uh, they fed me so many green beans that up until a year ago in my life, I swore I didn't like them anymore because <laughs> yeah. that was all we had as a kid. And even my dad up until a couple of years ago was like, I don't like green beans anymore either. We overdid it. Uh, but finally, I've come around and I like green beans again. So green beans were a lot. Um, all those other things. I'm sure potatoes. Um you know, herbs, basil, parsley, oregano, asparagus, peas, onions, blueberry patch, some raspberries, you know, a fair amount of things. Apple trees. There was a whole apple orchard on the property before my parents bought it that was still kind of there. And then the thing my dad really made in the way of food and growing is a weird way to think about it, but is maple syrup. Uh, he actually had a small maple syrup business when I was young. Uh, it was originally called Stouffer's Pure Maple Syrup. 
And somehow, and this is the early 90s here, late 80s even, somehow the Stouffer Food Corporation, the makers of lasagna and all that good stuff, found out about this little teeny business in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan my dad had and sent him a lawsuit or a letter back in the day saying, if you don't change the name, we were going to sue you because we have the (laughs) copyright on that name. And so then he ended up changing to Sugar Mountain uh, Pure Maple Syrup. But again, I don't know how in the late 80s, early 90s, without the internet, anyone would have found out about that. Yeah, and how dare they? They should have embraced him. (laughs) Did you have favorite holiday meals with him? Even if the food wasn't great necessarily, were there food traditions you still try to carry on? One interesting thing is my half my family is Jewish. And so my Jewish grandparents would come every Thanksgiving, come to our house. And of course, a huge deal for me, right? It was a one time a year they came to the house. And because they kept kosher, um, but they 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 were conservative. So they would they would have some modifications when they went out, but they wouldn't eat meat when they went out. So they would literally for Thanksgiving, throw a frozen turkey in their luggage, <laughs> fly from Dayton, Ohio to land at the Marquette Airport in like 18 feet of snow. <laughs> and then we would pick them up usually Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And then Thursday would be, you got to thaw out the turkey. My grandmother would be in the kitchen making uh, pies and then pie crusts. My grandmother would come and like make two dozen pie crusts and just put them in the freezer for us for the future. Yeah. And so those are kind of some of the memories for my grandparents a little bit. Um, there is one dish my dad used to make that he, he claimed it came from his mother and it's super simple and so unhealthy, but so delicious. But you just, t- uh, you toast a piece of bread, then you get some good tomato and put it on there. And then you put some nice strips of bacon on there and then you dump a cheese sauce all over that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're talking about foods that, you know, were simple, but impactful when you're yes. a child. My mom would make something we called cinnamon toast and it was just a slice of bread slathered in butter with a healthy shake of cinnamon sugar all over it. Run it under the broiler. And it's the best food imaginable. It's better than, you know, bakery pastries. Right, And I I think that to me, like that power, that memory associated with food, I think is why it's so unique and why I love talking about food and communication so much. Because you think about that, that's a super simple dish. But you think about the memories that are tied to it and how it makes you think of your mother and maybe some other family members, things like that. And I I still think that like that frozen turkey. Right. I, I have no idea. I still don't really even like turkey that much. I always <laughs> think it's too dry. But the, the that turkey and that idea, I mean, that is forever going to be with me and with, you know, my memory of my grandparents at this point. Right. Is them throwing a frozen turkey in their suitcase. You know, this food course you teach is part of a special curriculum at Longwood that I've always admired where students take courses that strengthen their understanding of the relationship between individual rights and responsibility to the common good. How do you think you do that through studying food? So I think it's amazing to look at how us individually um, are connected with each other and how that connections can form the common good. And I think food is an amazing way to look at that because you can look at all food cultures around the world have some sort of dough ball, right? You have a dumpling, you have a ravioli, you have a pierogi, you have a samosa, you have an empanada. You think about it. These are all the same thing. Right. They're all the same thing. And the cultures have adapted them, made them their own. So I think that is a great example of like you can look at these individual things, but then realize we have more in common than anything. Right. Because even though all these cultures have this different food, they develop them individually and yet they're also similar. So in the end, right, we may even have those differences here. We may have those unique differences in our food or what we think or believe, stuff like that. But in the end, I think we can look at, you know what? We all are similar when it comes down to it, even though they're not the same. They're all similar ideas here. So I think humanity, we have more in similar than we have more in common as humanity than we have different. And I think food is a great way to illustrate that. Hey, as we're going into the holidays, what foods are you looking forward to eating and making? Mm. So interesting tradition uh, in my family here with my my wife and my two young children. A couple of years ago, for some reason, we started making homemade pizza on Christmas evening. And so little things like that, I think, are, are my personal favorite things is traditions I get to start. Uh, they get to start with my young children here. And, you know, will it hopefully it will, like, as we mentioned earlier, be one of those kind of soft skills, those soft memories they have of uh, of us later on in life when they're older and thinking about it. But right now they just love it because they get to eat pizza on Christmas. How old are they? What are their names? Uh, Zev, my son, is 10 and I and my daughter will be five in like a month. I hope you have a great holiday together. Thank you. Ryan Stouffer is a professor of communication studies at Longwood University. 
was the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. That poem actually came about because a man named John Pentard wanted poor people to be quiet on Christmas. Because in Pentard's time, Christmas was a day for laborers to drink and party hardy in the streets. So he commissioned poetry to redefine Christmas as a family affair. Mary Beth Matthews is a professor of American and European religious history at William and Mary. She walks us through some of the origins of Christmas and Hanukkah celebrations in the U.S. Mary, you teach a course about how Christmas and Hanukkah are celebrated in the U.S. and how traditions around those two holidays have evolved in the past century. What surprises your students most? I think what surprises them most is that they don't realize that Christmas and Hanukkah have changed over time. They're very used to the world they live in and how they see Christmas and Hanukkah celebrated. They really enjoyed the idea that Christmas hasn't always been about commercials for, you know, buying a car that has a big bow on it in the driveway, that some of the traditions that they have have been around, but also that there was so much variation. I know that what they really, really enjoyed was learning that uh, Clement C. Moore's A Visit from Old St. Nick, or the one that starts out, was the night before Christmas, that that helped really change and focus Christmas into the family-oriented event it is today. When did that poem come out? Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. That came out in 1820. Um, it was in New York City. There was a man named John Pintard, an affluent uh, New Yorker. He owned quite a lot of land on Manhattan before New York was so developed. And he was really upset about the way that many poorer New Yorkers would use Christmas as a way to, when they had time off, drink, carouse, make a lot of noise, stay up late and disturb his sleep. And he felt that this needed to change. He wanted to make sure that Christmas had a, a more dignified, a more refined focus. And he was speaking with friends, uh, including Clement Moore, who wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas so that uh, they could provide a nice story that focused on the home and on family, right? With Ma in her kerchief and I in my cap. Had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. Exactly. Everything is about a warm, cozy home. Uh, the children are there. They're all tucked in. They're thinking about their presence. And then uh, St. Nick comes. Um, funnily enough, St. Nick is kind of... Uh, in the poem, doing a few things that are kind of wink-wink motions, uh, like this is a joke between you and me when he puts his finger aside his nose. That's a way of, of saying, ha-ha, we know better. But the whole poem itself is a way of saying Christmas is about a winter with family and home. It's disappointing to me to think that a guy could commission a poem I kind of liked as a child <laughs> in order to influence how I might behave at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? You know, and, and you know, there's always that, uh, gee, wouldn't it be great if we still use Christmas as a way to just go out and celebrate and make noise and, and stomp around? But, you know, yes, these two men were pretty influential in tamping that down. Talk to me about Hanukkah. It doesn't get as much shine as Christmas in America. How has the way American Jews celebrate Hanukkah evolved over the last century? So Hanukkah itself is not a major uh, holiday in the Jewish calendar. It's not even in the Hebrew Bible itself, like uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or Passover, also known as Pesach. Hanukkah's roots come from uh, two texts, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, that describe an event that happened long after the Hebrew Bible was compiled. And so for Jews in Europe or North Africa, the Middle East, the Iberian Peninsula, in the early 19th century, 
Hanukkah was not something commonly observed. But here in the United States, a group of uh, Jews, Reformed Jews, thought that observing Hanukkah would be a good idea to help them show solidarity with their American neighbors, most of whom were Christians. So why not have a religious celebration with candles and light and gift giving at the same time that their Christian neighbors were busy giving gifts and caroling and decorating Christmas trees. So these rabbis and Reformed Jewish leaders began to promote the notion of celebrating Hanukkah. And as more and more Orthodox Jews came to the United States, the Reform rabbis really touted Hanukkah as a way of saying, yes, look at us, we're just like you Americans. Was that in part because there was so much anti-Semitism during this period? Yes, in the late 1800s in the United States, in about the 1880s up until the 1920s, there was definitely anti-Semitism here in the United States. It took some more uh, violent turns, but not as many as in Europe. And the the way that Reformed Jews saw their path forward here in the U.S. was to say, look, we're not these scary people that you're making us out to be. We're Americans, too. We celebrate religion and religious freedom. And look, we light candles when you light candles. Hanukkah, of course, is very different from Christmas. Christmas is celebrating the birth of Jesus. And Hanukkah is telling a very different story. Would you describe it for us? Sure. The Hanukkah story is describing a period in Jewish history when Jews were living under Greek rule. And uh, at the time, there were uh, groups that were trying to, groups of Jews who were trying to resist that. The local leader of the Greeks installed in the temple in Jerusalem a uh, temple uh, altar to Zeus, um, a polytheistic god, right? Not the god that Jews and Christians and Muslims worship. And instead uh, installed this this particular altar and had uh, food left on it for Zeus, uh, desecrating this temple that was dedicated to God. So there was a rebellion, a group of people uh, who became known as the Maccabees really fought back and eventually captured the temple and managed to cleanse it of the temple's dedication to Zeus. They rededicated it to God. And the story goes that they only had enough sacred oil to light a lantern or a lamp for one night. But somehow, through a miracle, that light lasted for eight nights. And that's where the miracle of Hanukkah comes from. We've just finished the observance of Hanukkah, December 7 through 15, this year. How would you say the American observance of Hanukkah is different from how Jews observe Hanukkah elsewhere? Well, in other, in pretty much every other country in the world— Hanukkah is just not celebrated, or if it is, it is a very minor event. It's not uh, an event with many gifts. Uh, There aren't postal service stamps dedicated to it, for example. Um, (laughs) It is, it's very, very much overlooked. Here in the United States, it's a time of family and friends. It's gift giving. Children get chocolate coins. They get small presents and big presents much like American children who are not Jewish get gifts on Christmas. You know, for decades, Americans have bemoaned the commercialization of Christmas. There's one point in the class where you actually show a crazy documentary that was made by people who oppose the commercialization, and they make a little fun of it. <laughs> yes, and the students really love that. The, uh, the, the movie is called What Would Jesus Buy?, And in this movie, they follow the escapades of a man who calls himself Reverend Billy, and he has a stop shopping gospel choir. They all get on a bus and they travel around to different malls, uh, especially Starbucks stores and Disney stores, 
and they protest about against Christmas by singing gospel music of their own writing. And Reverend Billy, who is styled like an 80s uh, televangelist, gets up and and rails against the kind of rampant commercialism he sees. His message is to leave the malls and go home and spend time with family. And at one point, he actually, they stop along the way at a small men's clothing store in a very rural town, and he buys a sweater there because he wants to support the local community and economy rather than the big businesses. And the students really love that. In fact, one of the students gave his final presentation as if he were Reverend Billy. (laughs) Do you have holiday traditions you love? I am a big believer in spending time with my family um, and with friends if I can. Um, It's usually involving just hanging out together, eating good food, telling stories, um, enjoying each other's presence. (laughs) They're they're being with me, not presence as in gifts. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Mary Beth Matthews, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Mary Beth Matthews is a professor of American and European religious history at William & Mary. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo is our intern, Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to With Good Reason Radio. I'm Sarah McConnell. Happy holidays and thanks for listening.